This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to episode 260 of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me as always is the wonderful Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you doing this week? I am doing wonderful. That's why I'm the wonderful Bruce Gibson. (laughs) So how are you doing today, wonderful Dan Gunther? Not too bad. I'm recovering from a cold again. I don't know why this keeps happening, but yeah, this is uh, rare for me. Usually I don't get colds very often, but uh, I've got another one I'm fighting. Well, it's so cold where you are. Yeah, that must be it. No, no, I'm surviving. I'm on the tail end of it now. So I uh, spent a good amount of time over the last week in bed reading this book. So it gave me lots of time to to get this finished the last couple of days. So yeah, yeah, it sucks to have a cold or be sick. But when I do get sick, sometimes I'm like, oh, but this is great. I get to do a lot of reading. But it also depends how you feel. Sometimes you're sick and you're like, I'm laying in bed. I feel like reading. But I know as soon as I open the book, I'll probably fall asleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yep, there's yeah. definitely a lot of that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, speaking of this book, I should say what the book is. We're going to be covering the Star Trek The Next Generation novel Death in Winter in the feature coming up, which is kind of the lead off into the post-nemesis Star Trek shared continuity relaunch slash whatever other word you want to call this huge beast of books we've enjoyed over the last few years. So Uh, Really excited to jump into that. Before that, we don't actually have any news that we uh, have to report this week. Um, Because I've said that, I'm sure something big and breaking will come out now between when we record this episode and when it goes live. But uh, you know that better than we do at this point. So instead, we're just going to jump right into your Babel Conference feedback from Literary Treks 258, Inaccurate operas will be performed of this day, which was all about the Klingon Empire novel A Burning House by Keith R.A. DeCandido. 
Actually, the first comment on here was by Bruce Gibson. And, you know, if you haven't listened to that episode all the way through to the end, I'm going to bring this up because you should check out the two minutes of outtakes at the very end of the episode. Uh, So if you turned off that episode before you finished it, you should reload that. And there are some ridiculous outtakes that I'm really not sure how I feel about them being included, but I've been told that they're very funny. So you should definitely check that out. Ah, so when someone told you they were funny then, hmm. well, you know, (laughs) it's also a great insight as to how we are off the show. I mean, we're kind of goofy on the show too, but yeah, off the show, there's plenty of laughs, uh, going on (laughs) (laughs) reports of our senses of humor may have been greatly exaggerated (laughs) (laughs) well speaking of humor justin ozer that that's the worst lead and i don't know why i did that but anyway um (laughs) justin ozer had a joke that he posted no i'm kidding so he says about the 2020 stargazer comic the artwork is beautiful it was also great to see younger picard Jack Crusher, and Cadet Beverly Howard, but the story didn't feel very compelling to me. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I I can see that. Because, you know, it was written by Peter David, and is that the one? Yeah, that was right. He was Peter David Mm -hmm. that wrote that one. And I'm a big fan of Peter David, and I, I remember commenting that it just... It wasn't like the best Peter David comic because he's written so many great ones, in my opinion. But um, no, but it was fun. It was good. I agree with you, Justin. But yeah, it wasn't. I think the artwork was probably the best part of it. Yeah, I definitely have to agree with you on the artwork for sure. J.K. Woodward's stuff is always amazing. I love that painted style, as I'm sure if you've seen if you've heard the episode, you heard me gush on about that. But yeah, the story is, you know, because it's a one shot there's not a lot they can really do to do a, you know, long ranging story. But at the same time, yeah, as far as, you know, with Peter David's name attached to it, you kind of expect a little bit more. And it it felt a little bit lacking in that area for me. But uh, as, a pe- as a piece of art, it's absolutely gorgeous. Chris Trebuzio comments, you mentioned where the doctor's hair is stroked by the male character's father's arm. <laughs> How weird of a turn and what are your thoughts had it been... More twisted to read the doctor say, this reminds me of your father's gentle touch. (laughs) Yeah, there's, it's, it's a little weird. Um, so the main character of the novel, Clagg, lost his arm during the Dominion War and his arm was replaced by that of his, uh, dead father's arm. Um, (laughs) my mind flashed back to, uh, in in the television show Friends, I don't know if anybody out there is a Friends fan, yeah. but when Monica dated Richard's son and she had dated Richard for a while and uh, one of the characters said, oh, you can say to him, that's not how your dad used to do it. <laughs> I'm just like, oh man, no. Yeah, it's, um, this is kind of the Star Trek version of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the sci-fi version of that ick. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. so again, wait, and, and Justin, thank you for commenting to Chris. That was not, that's my interpretation on the show. Like, it wasn't mentioned in the book, it just... <laughs> <laughs> he it's some I think there was something mentioned that he stroked her hair and I just mentioned well he does have his father's arm <laughs> like it's 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 kind of weird you know I was just It's kind of weird. weird really sums that up yeah 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 <laughs> yeah but you know my favorite thing about this thread then cuz Chris and Justin go on to talking but at the very end Chris says that he hadn't read the 
this book or any of the Gorkon novels, but he often, when he listens to this podcast, which he enjoys, he says, he finds himself buying these books. See, that I'd love to hear. And I know there's some other people who have told me they've done the same thing where they'll listen to the show and then they say, wow, that's a book I want to read. And then they go and they buy it or they go to the library mm-hmm. or whatever, but they read the book. And that just makes me so happy. I'm not here to, you know, help improve sales on the books, but I just, it's like, you know, sharing something. It's like, oh, you know, we like the book and now you're reading it. We have that in common. Now we've read that book. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious to anyone listening that Star Trek novels are something that we're very passionate about. So if we can do something to kind of share that passion and, you know, ignite it in other people as well, you know, the more we'll keep getting Star Trek novels. So it's it's really selfish of us what we're doing on this show. We're just trying to ensure that we get more Star Trek novels in the future. But Absolutely. Uh, and And I think it's things like me saying that, you know, Clag uses his father's arm to stroke her hair. That makes people want to say, I want to read that. <laughs> you wouldn't think so, but apparently that's the case. <laughs> At least for Chris, yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you guys for your comments. And, you know, if you want to have your comments read on the uh, on an episode of Literary Treks, just go to the Babel Conference on Facebook and find the thread for the episode that you just listened to. Uh, if it's a recent episode and leave a comment and you might hear your comments on an upcoming episode. And even if your comment is, Hey guys, how you doing? We'll read that on the show and answer that question. Absolutely. We're shameless. We'll, we'll highlight any attention that you give us. (laughs) If you want a recipe, just ask, we'll, we'll share it on the show. Excellent. (laughs) Well, I'm not really sure how to do a segue from that, but we are going to move now into the feature to talk about... No, the segue is, hey, well, guess what we have cooking up on the feature? All right. (laughs) Well, speaking of recipes, guess what we've got cooking up in the feature? We're going to be talking about Star Trek The Next Generation, Death in Winter. Join us there, won't you? As we mentioned at the top of the show, the book we're talking about is The Next Generation, Death in Winter by Michael Jan Friedman, published in September of 2005. And this kind of kicks off our basically months long look at the the relaunch post nemesis continuity of books that include Star Trek the Next Generation, Deep Space 9, Titan, all of those books that together kind of make up that continuity. And I have to say when we first kind of broached the idea of doing these books it looks so daunting and so huge. Uh, This is really a huge chunk of Star Trek literature that's kind of dominated the Trek book market for the last uh, over a decade. Like 2005 is when this started and we're, you know, 14 years after that now. So this is a huge part of what has made up the Star Trek literary universe. Yeah. So because we read A Time 2, that series, which takes place prior to Nemesis, we decided, well, let's just keep going because there seemed to be a lot of interest and requests to do some more post nemesis books so this is the first one death and winter and we have at times so every month we have one that it takes us to the point that we should end 2019 with the destiny trilogy so if you want to join us on that we'll start from here and get through to the destiny trilogy and then i guess we'll decide if i will probably continue 
on past that into 2020. But then at some point we're going to stop because some of these later post nemesis books were already covered on literary tracks. So mm-hmm. we're not going to go through all of them because a lot of them have already been covered on the show. Yeah. But interestingly, a lot of the big ones we haven't done. So like we said, the destiny trilogy is kind of a big landmark that we've never done before. We're excited to get to. And like Bruce said, if we continue after that, we also have the Typhon Pact novels, which we never did cover on literary treks. So, you know, there's a there's a lot there. there a, f- a couple of the later ones I think we did, but the, you know, Zero Sum Game and some of those we never did get to. So I didn't even realize that. But yeah, OK, so it'll probably take yeah. us up to the Typhon Pact. Mm hmm. Um, after that, I know we did the fall and, and yeah. those things. So that's well past that. But, you know, we've got a lot to cover before then. So that's kind of looking way in the future. That's like 2020 and beyond. So uh, we're nowhere near that yet. And what's interesting about doing this now is that this is the literary verse of Picard after nemesis and we're getting a new picard tv series and as of this recording we don't know any real details about it except that it takes place 20 25 years something like that after nemesis so it'll be interesting as we're reading these books and when the new picard series comes out how well these connect to that or how well they don't mm-hmm. that's going to be interesting and i'm sure is going to be uh fuel for a lot of uh, online discussion and debates among fans who like the literary universe. So uh, looking forward to that. But yeah, starting here, we've got this book, Death in Winter. Uh, and this takes place very shortly after the events of Star Trek Nemesis. In fact, the Enterprise is still in dry dock following the catastrophic damage that she suffered when battling the scimitar in the Basin Rift against Shinzon. And there's a bunch of personnel changes happening. Uh, Dr. Crusher, as we learned in the A Time 2 series, uh, has plans to leave the Enterprise and head up Starfleet Medical, which she does. Um, And after she's transferred to Starfleet Medical to head it up, she is sent on an assignment to visit a planet called Kevratas in Romulan space. Due to some of the events of her youth, she she grew up on a colony with her grandmother on the planet Arvada 3, where she encountered this pl- deadly plague called the Bloodfire, which affected the race that lives on Kevratas, the Kevrata, uh, who are subjects of the Romulan Empire. So the Romulan Empire has really done nothing to help them. And they've turned to the Federation for help. And Beverly Crusher, as the foremost expert on this, because of her experience in her youth, is sent there uh, to help battle this plague. So, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about this assignment. And the way we learn of it is kind of interesting. We She talks to Picard from Starfleet Medical. She's settling into her new post. And then the next thing we know is Picard kind of finds out that she's been sent on this mission um, after learning that she's basically disappeared. So this seems like an interesting assignment to send the head of Starfleet Medical on. It does. And it I found myself a bit confused by that because like you're saying, she's at Starfleet Medical. She just started. And then another chapter later, She's on this planet and she's, you know, trying to cure this plague and she's undercover. And I'm like, wait, 
I thought she's at Starfleet Medical. What's going on here? I'm I'm confused. Mm-hmm. This has happened later. And so we're almost going on this journey with Picard and learning that yeah, she was at Starfleet Medical, but this was uh an undercover assignment, which seems really strange to occur within about a week after starting. I mean, if you're you take a job starting uh to head up Starfleet Medical, you wouldn't expect to then leave and be gone to some planet in the Romulus in the Romulan star system. I mean, that's mm-hmm. like, Hey, the new boss is here. Where'd she go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It seemed definitely very sudden, um, you know, and, and it kind of makes sense from what we see that, you know, she's the best person for the job because in the course of this, we get glimpses of her past growing up on Arvada 3. And we first heard of this incident, I believe, in the Next Generation episode, The Arsenal of Freedom, when Picard and Crusher are trapped in this hole and and Crusher is injured and she has to kind of coach Picard on how to care for her. And she talks about her grandmother using the herbs from her garden to treat victims of this plague and stuff. Um, so I thought that was a nice little callback to that. What do we think of like this storyline and Beverly's past? And I mean, there's a bunch of other stuff here. We get kind of her first kiss with a boy and all this stuff here as well. Oh yeah. I forgot about that part. Yeah. I like looking back at her past. Uh, there's not a whole lot of it. It's not like the book really focuses on it, but there's a couple chapters where we get to look back at her past and it's great to have that insight into a prominent character like Beverly Crusher and find out what she was like as a child how she would have gotten interested in going into medicine and into Starfleet Academy. And it is a nice little touch to see that she had this little brief romance with this boy. As a matter of fact, the way he approached her and the way she was acting, I thought she didn't want him to get close to her, but then he kissed her and she seemed to be perfectly fine with that. I was actually surprised. I thought she was going to slap him. But uh, or or (laughs) create some distance or something, alluding to the fact that she and Picard never seem to get together as if like she has this history of, you know, maybe not always getting together with guys that she likes or like her or whatever, except for Jack Crusher at this point. But, yeah, it was nice to see uh, her as a young lady and uh, with her grandmother. Yeah, I really appreciated these little bits here for sure. This doesn't really play into the story too much here, other than to introduce the character who does steal it, a Romulan spy by the name of Manathus. Uh, And he'll play a bigger role as we get into the story here as well. So, you know, starting with all these flashbacks, I really thought there would be kind of a bit more of that and there'd be like a huge backstory aspect of this novel. But it really is just setting up certain things before we launch into the main story for sure. Yeah, I agree. I I expected once it started off and there was these flashbacks that we were going to get more context to that and or more flashbacks and we didn't, which is fine. It wasn't like I was missing it. But that first part you're talking about Manathis getting the DNA. Of course, we know the DNA of Picard was used for Shinzon. But if for some reason somebody hadn't watched Nemesis, I don't think the book clearly defined what that was used for that's more of the i'm you know the author's expecting the reader to already know that and that's actually a pattern that i think we'll notice a lot more in this novel going forward is there's a lot of source material that uh 
I think would serve you very well to know it before reading this novel. Nemesis, I mean, you've got to figure most people reading a Star Trek novel probably will have watched Nemesis, but there's definitely some stuff that comes up later in the book that, you know, I think it's almost very important to have read some other novels that uh, I think a lot of people might not, not necessarily have read when reading this one. Yeah, I think actually there was at one point they did mention that Shinzon was a clone or something of Picard. So maybe if somebody didn't know Nemesis for some reason, that would be the hint to what the DNA was used for. But, um, and I think there was a little more explanation, but you're right. There were several times, and this kind of annoyed me in a way, that there was references maybe to other novels or episodes or something where... Michael Jan Freeman would take like almost two or three paragraphs telling you that story. Like, Hey, you may not know this story, but it has to do with what's going on in the scene. So let me tell you this whole backstory. And I'm like, you know, if we really have to go back and explain that much, then maybe not don't reference it or don't work that in. Yeah. I have some kind of mixed thoughts on some of that as well. And when we get to those parts, I'll definitely bring that up because yeah, some of that, bugged me a little bit but uh so going back to this mission though uh beverly crusher is on Kavradas, and she's there a very short time basically just meets her contact there before she's captured by romulans because they've they've um infiltrated this underground and know that they have brought her crusher to the planet and know that she's there so they capture her rather handily pretty quickly here and the Romulans that capture her are led by a familiar face, uh, actually just made an appearance in the last novel that we talked about, Commander Sela, the alternate universe daughter of Tasha Yar uh, from yesterday's Enterprise and then Redemption and then Unification and all that whole stuff that happened with timelines and alternate timelines and all that kind of stuff. Um Sila again I I'm not the biggest fan of this character and I don't know what it is I love Denise Crosby I loved her as Tasha Yar um maybe that's only because we got one season with her uh maybe I wouldn't have liked her if, she, if they'd kept her on the show but you know as Sila I just never really liked this character but we've got her again here um in charge of this and I'm wondering if this is just another in Sila's string of screw-ups <laughs> i have to call you out on that too because you uh messaged me when you started the book and you're like oh seal it again and i was like and i just started i hadn't got to that part and i was like oh gosh because neither one of us are big sila fans it's not that i i hate sila i i just i'm not just a big fan of her and i would say I don't know. Maybe it is the character or maybe I just didn't care for Denise Crosby in that role. Maybe because I did like mm -hmm. Denise Crosby as Tashiar. So I'm not a big fan of the character, but you know, I don't mind reading Celia in here and I'll give you a little, you know, hint to some of my feelings of this book right now. And that is that, you know, I actually liked Celia in this book. So, um, mm. it didn't distract or, or make me regret that she was in there. I actually enjoyed the character. It worked for me. Yeah, I will say she was less of the, you know, um, wahaha, you know, wringing her hands, mustache twirling villain like she was That's in Imzadi 2. Yeah, that, she was a little yeah. bit more realistic here, which yeah, I appreciated. Yeah. I agree with you on that. But yeah, I think she's even like that sometimes on the show. Mm -hmm. 
yeah the the last minute where she walks in and she's the mastermind behind it all and you know the audience is supposed to go oh my god it's sila and that just never really happened with me <laughs> yeah no oh, i think that's yeah, it yeah. Her. so now that we're <laughs> trashing sila no I'm kidding. <laughs> anyway. sorry for all the sila fans out there yeah uh i think part of it also is um she's brought up a lot in the novels. I think she's used a lot by novel writers. Whenever they go to the Romulan empire, they're like, Oh, Sila, that's an interesting character. Let's do something with her. And I think she gets used just a little bit too much for my tastes. Um, especially since she's the antagonist. So, you know, whatever plan she has has to fail because our heroes have to survive and triumph. So for a character to continue to fail time after time after time after time, it just feels like it's not realistic that they're still around, you know? <laughs> well, mm, ah. yeah, well, I'll save it for later because I don't want to spoil it yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, another aspect that uh, comes into play in this novel is the state of the Romulan Empire. Now, the Romulan Empire has been through a lot lately. We had, of course, Nemesis with Shinzon killing the entire Romulan Senate and taking over the empire. And now of course he's been killed and the Romulan empire is in turmoil and kind of really on the brink of a civil war. Uh, the empire has a new praetor Talora who we saw in nemesis. She's taken over from Shinzon and there's kind of an opposition to her, uh, an admiral from the Romulan military, Admiral Bregg, and also another familiar face, the commander of the Valdor, Commander Donatra, who we also saw in Nemesis. They are lovers and they're kind of fighting together against the new leadership with their own rebellion, along with another Romulan commander we saw in Nemesis, Commander Saran. And so we're kind of setting the stage for this huge um, conflict that's going to tear the Romulan Empire apart. Uh, we've got this kind of small regional issue with Sela and stuff on the planet Kavradas in the with the backdrop of this big huge impending civil war in the Romulan Empire and there's all kinds of backroom deals and backstabbings and shady business and all that kind of stuff that Manathus guy that we talked about earlier he's been sent as a spy by Talora to Kavatras but he's also working with an arms dealer Eborian who wants to discredit Sila to gain more favor from the Praetor. He kind of wants to be her main confidant and advisor and wants to kind of squeeze Sila out. So you have these competing loyalties and you're never sure who's working for who exactly. And of course, we've also got another familiar face here, Tomalok, who uh, was played by Andreas Katsoulis in the Star Trek The Next Generation series, and he's leading the loyal Romulan fleet under Praetor Talora against the Rebellion. So what did you think of this whole, the state of the Empire and what's going on here? Because I think that to me is kind of the most interesting part of this book, even though it's not the main story. Interesting you just said that, because my comment to this is, this is my favorite part of the book. <laughs> so going into Excellent. this book, I had never read Death in Winter. Uh, I don't know why I never got to it. Uh, the first few books in the post-Nemesis series that were TNG, for some reason, I never read those. But going into this now, I was under the impression that this book was really a book focused on the relationship between Picard and Crusher. 
it is part of the book, but it's not the theme of the book. It's not, I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. woven throughout in a sense, but to me, this is really a Romulan novel. I mean, if anybody is interested in Romulans, you would be deceived by looking at this cover and seeing Picard and a silhouette of, of Beverly Crusher on it and not know that this is a Romulan novel. I would say if you're a Romulan fan, this is a novel you would probably want to read. All this drama going on with the Romulans really fascinated me because Shizon is out. He's no longer in power. He's dead. And now there's this discord in the Romulan Empire of, you know, well, who's going to lead? And then there's like the civil wars, everything's that you were just talking about. And then there's, you know, people who are on one side of things, but they are also being deceiving because they want power or they want favor. And I just found the whole thing fascinating. I would have been fine if this book just was a book about that, about what's going on in the Romulan Star Empire. Because I was into every single one of these Romulan characters, from the Praetor to the spy, to, you know, the, the family that is arms dealers. I mean, they all have their own agendas and they're all playing each other. And it's just, it was just really fascinating to me. That's what carried the book for me. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Articles of the Federation, but for Romulus. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And which, you know, we're going to do articles of the Federation here in the next month or so. So, yeah, I really enjoyed this. And I'm not like a huge Romulan fan, like, you know, oh, I just want to read Romulan books a lot. But this one I I really enjoyed. Yeah, that's kind of where I am, too. I went into this kind of rolling my eyes a bit and going like, oh, man, the Romulans and political backstabbing and huh. But then, like, as I went, you know, flipping the pages, I'm like, I'm kind of getting into this. Like this guy who's uh, an arms dealer, part of this arms dealer family, he really wants to get close to Talora and, you know, he's got all these plots going on, but you know, the guy he's working for, he, oh man, he, he has so much like hubris and confidence. He's like, oh, when I'm done with this guy, I'm going to kill him. But this spy that he has working for him, you know, he's been operating for so long you know, since the early days of Picard's career and stuff, you know, he's a survivor and has made his way in the empire. It was like, you're not going to be able to do that, dude. Like something's going to happen here. You're, this is going to blow up in your face. And, you know, you just continue reading the book to see how this all plays out. And you just know that people are headed for falls and other people are going to uh, get their comeuppance and all this kind of stuff. I really enjoyed that much more than I really thought I would. Yeah, and and the Praetor is the one in Nemesis that brought that device into the Senate that killed everyone. Now she's Praetor. I mean, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. You know, she's she's in power and she knows how to play people. They they you know, one character doesn't want to be embarrassed in his house, so he's like, just kill me now. And she's like, no, I'm going to do it publicly. Too embarrassed because that's the thing you want least to happen so that's what i'm going to do you know it's just those kind of Mm -hmm. things it was just so fascinating to me yeah definitely and not wanting to spoil stuff coming up in later books but this is all very much leading laying the groundwork for a lot of the stuff that happens in the romulan empire going forward in the novels which you know like i said I, i never thought i was the biggest romulan fan but i do remember reading some of those later books and being really interested in what happens with the empire and and We'll get there. I don't want to spoil anything, but the seeds yeah. of it are definitely planted here. Yeah, especially with taking wing 
which is the first Titan book. I think there's a lot of connection from my understand from this to that. I did read Taking Wing uh, when that first came out, but I think there are too, some yeah. parallels uh, between this one and that one. And just to say, you said about spoilers for other books. Yeah, for this book, we're really probably going to start getting more into spoilers at this point. So if you don't want to hear anything, leave or... I don't know. It's a, such an interesting conversation. So stay tuned. <laughs> Excellent. Some confidence for our upcoming conversation. I really like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we mentioned, uh, Dr. Crusher is captured by Sela on Kavatris very early in her mission. And Starfleet responds to this by sending a new team to Kavatris with the mission of finding this cure. Their primary mission is to find the cure for the Kavatrans. Secondary mission is to rescue Crusher if she's still alive, which Starfleet highly doubts she is. They think she's probably off the board and been taken out. But the person who's leading this team is, of course, Captain Jean-Luc Picard, and the doctor that they decide to take is another doctor who has some experience with this particular illness, and that is Dr. Greyhorse, who is the former chief medical officer of the Stargazer, who's currently imprisoned for attempted murder, and the event that leads to that is detailed in another Michael Jan Friedman novel, Reunion, uh, which I have to say is a very good novel. It's a hardcover novel that came out during the Next Generation's run. Uh, I have read it. I really liked that. I think it's a great novel. It's kind of the novel that introduces all of Picard's former Stargazer crewmates. Um, if you're ever wanting to read the Stargazer book series by Michael Jan Friedman, I would suggest that novel as the one you start with before reading the Stargazer novels, which I have not read, actually. But the reunion novel does introduce all of those characters. And another character from that novel that we get is Pug Joseph, who is no longer in Starfleet, but he's the captain of a merchant ship, which will be used to smuggle Picard and Greyhorse to Kavatris. And joining them on this team is also a Romulan dissident named Decalon, who is kind of one of those guys that was smuggled out of Romulus using Spock's Underground Railroad. Uh, that's one of the things I really like about this book, is it's pulling all these different things from different sources, different episodes of Star Trek, different novels and that kind of thing. Like I mentioned earlier, I kind of worry that maybe you had to have read Reunion to really understand these characters. Uh, we know that Greyhorse, for example, um, had some issues and was convicted of attempted murder, but we don't really understand what those issues were. He talks a little bit about, you know, being in love with another officer and that's kind of what led to all of this. But without reading that novel, it's really complicated. And I, I wondered, did you ever read Reunion? Why, yes, I did. As a matter of fact, okay. I started reading Star Trek novels in 1991. And that's when Reunion came out. I think it was the first oh, okay. Star Trek hardcover I ever read, but I haven't read it since then. So some of mm. this was just like, I remember that name, Grey Horse. Like, but I couldn't remember because it's been so long. But there was things about that were coming back to my to memory, but it's like I was saying earlier. I I don't I love that he goes back and references other books. I I have no issues with that. It just seemed like maybe there's a little too much, like I said, of that in whether it's books or episodes where he had to explain backstories a lot of times. Like, well, you know, I need to catch the reader up in just case they don't know. However, at the same time, because he was referencing 
reunion and the stargazer books that he wrote if anything it made me go oh man now i want to go back and read those or reread those mm-hmm. you know because it was like i don't remember the whole gray horse thing that well i want to go back and read that and that's what i love about everything star trek because a lot of times you watch something or read something and then you want to go watch or read something else because it was referenced yeah i think my experience is very similar to yours i read reunion way back when i think uh, some family member bought it for me when I was pretty young and I read it back then. I have read it since though, like within the last three or four years. So it's a little bit more fresh. And it was one of those experiences where you reread a novel that you read years ago and you're like, I don't remember any of this. This is like reading it again for the first time. So I, I did kind of worry if someone hasn't read that book, you know, how much do they really get? It's it's kind of, yeah, finding that balance between recapping the entire story and maybe not giving enough, but yeah, I, I I was wondering what that experience would be like for someone who's not read that novel. Well, and the fact that I haven't read that novel in what nearly 30 years. Wow. Does that sound (laughs) really weird? I, like I said, I don't really remember much of it, but I don't think a reader would get lost if they never read it because he does explain, like I said, if anything, it got me more interested in gray horse I knew now, you know, by reading this, he explains what had happened, but now I'm really curious to go back and reread Reunion to see why it happened. Yeah. And I think like that's one of the cool things is it could inspire rereads or reads for the first time. Like I said, I read Reunion a number of times, but I've never read the Stargazer series of novels and I would, wouldn't mind going back and checking those out because I've always been kind of fascinated with them. So yeah, and that's, that's what makes cool. this character interesting because he's a Starfleet officer and he's he's been in prison for murder on the Stargazer of other crew members. And you're like, whoa, what? Why would that happen? And and again, it doesn't really matter to this novel why he did what he did. That's for the other book to read in Reunion. But it makes the character interesting because now he is needed to help you know, cure this plague. And so is he going to do something? Is he going to do something wrong? Is he going to try to escape? You know, what, what is up with this guy? And, you know, in some ways I think Michael Jan Freeman could have even taken this character further in this book than he did. Uh, It could have been really more interesting. Uh, I don't think he played up the character as much as he could have, because there really isn't that much that he does in this book. Yeah. He does like work on the cure and eventually does come up with it and stuff. But I I kept expecting something more, like you said, and there's a great line where I think it's pug Joseph says to Picard something along the lines of, you know, I I think he's not completely better. Like, I don't think he's back quite back to normal. And Picard says, Oh, I agree. But then Pug Joseph says, but I think he's better enough to not be in that prison anymore. And Picard's like, yeah, I agree with you as well. And I kept expecting to find out what happened with him. And we never do in this novel. No, we don't. You know, I didn't really realize until I'd put the book down and about 10 minutes later, I was like, hey, wait a minute. What about Carter Greyhorse? Like, what happened to him? Did he go back to prison? Does he have a parole hearing? Is Picard going to speak out for him or possibly against him based on some of the stuff he saw on this mission like what's going to happen there absolutely yeah it's not till after you put down the book that you realize and it wasn't until we're having this conversation that i was like wait yeah 
they didn't really resolve that with him. It just kind of, he went back, I guess, to, to be in prison. But yeah, it's definitely an opportunity to revisit him in another future book. However, I'm looking in memory beta right now, and it does not appear that he is in later novels. So it doesn't look hmm. like we revisit this character. I wonder if there were plans for him to do so. Because did Michael Jan Friedman write any more Star Trek novels after this one? Or is this kind of the last one? Well, the answer to that question is no. He hasn't written any more novels, Star Trek novels, after this one. So you're right. He may have hmm. planned to revisit this character and never had that opportunity. That's That's kind of too bad. I would be... I would be curious to know what the ultimate fate of this character is. And I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be Michael Jan Friedman, of course, to write that, but he would be the most likely one too, because, you know, he has the investment in the character and that kind of thing. So, ah, uh, that's really too bad that it doesn't seem to have been followed up on. Yeah. And it's interesting because I've always enjoyed his writing, even when he did the comics for DC and it's, Interesting to know that this was his last Star Trek novel that I just read. Now I'm a little sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely a bunch in there that I haven't read yet. But yeah, I would. Uh, that's really too bad. There's nothing further on from here. Well, speaking of storylines that don't get followed up on, I'm wondering your thoughts on Worf and Geordi's role in this book because I found this kind of odd. So we have the two of them and they seem very intent on figuring out where Picard has gone because their commanding officer in the middle of a refit has been detailed by Starfleet command to go off on some mission and they don't know where he is, but they kind of do some sleuthing to try and figure it out. And they eventually figure out that he's gone to somewhere in the Romulan empire after Beverly Crusher and you know, they're trying to narrow down which planet he's gone to so that they can follow him and, you know, rescue them or something like that. Worf keeps having these dreams that Dr. Crusher is dying and she'll die if he doesn't go and help them. But all of a sudden, Admiral Janeway shows up and says, I don't think you're planning on going anywhere anytime soon, are you? And Worf's like, no, of course not. And their whole plan is kind of nipped in the bud right there. Now, I was really surprised at this because I expected them to play a larger role and kind of be the cavalry coming over the hill at the end or something like that. But then that part of the story just seemed to end. Like, what did you kind of make of this story and why was that even in there? Yeah, this is the worst part of the book <laughs> because I, I agree. <laughs> there isn't really anything there. And there and it may occur in three different chapters, not taking up a whole chapter, but just you know, a little scene here or there. And yeah, so you see Worf and Jordy, oh, Picard has gone off somewhere. We need to figure it out. Maybe we should help. Like, and so, yeah, Jordy's the sleuthing through the files. Hey, I think he went here. Hey, I think Beverly Crusher's on assignment. And, you know, maybe we should just go. Maybe we should go help them. I'm like, really? Like, if Starfleet sent them on a mission, would you really go, well, we need to step in and and just not tell the crew where we're going. We'll just leave and go look for them. That, that doesn't mm -hmm. even make sense. They don't even really know what's going on. They don't even know if anybody's in danger or they could end up endangering the mission, which would endanger Jean-Luc and Beverly. So it was strange. And like you said, then Janeway shows up. You're not going to go anywhere, are you? Oh, no, no. 
And then when Picard does later return to the Enterprise, they're like, oh, by the way, Admiral Janeway was here. He's like, hmm, that's weird. I mean, it was so just like, <laughs> what is the point of this? I honestly think yeah. that either Michael Jan Freeman was told, look, it's fine to write a TNG novel, but you still have to work in the Enterprise. And the Enterprise doesn't really have anything to do with this story, but you somehow still have to work it in. And he wrote a few scenes that just go, well, there you go. There's the Enterprise and and there's Worf and Geordi. Because you think about the main crew members, the only ones remaining on that ship right now are the two of them because Data's gone from Nemesis. Mm -hmm. And uh, wait, who uh, I mean, Riker and Troy are on the Titan. So you really mm -hmm. only have Worf and Geordi from that core seven and so i think it was just a way to work them in to say this is a tng book because we have Worf, jordy jean luke and beverly in the book i i actually wonder if originally they were supposed to go off and kind of help them out at the very end like at the climax or something but then maybe the editor or the author himself decided that wasn't a good idea so they scrapped that but still had the first bit in or something and then decided to have janeway come in to head them off at the pass or so it just seems so weird that like there there's all this buildup and you're like okay they're gonna play a role Worf keeps having this dream that crusher's gonna die if he doesn't do something and then they end up doing nothing yeah like, it, it was, just it's so weird you could easily take that out if, if you did an abridged version of this novel as an audiobook those scenes would be removed for sure it would have if if you had to force them into this and it had to take place on the Enterprise. I think I would have preferred that the approach be that they've welcomed a new chief medical officer on the ship, and they're meeting the new chief medical officer, showing this individual around, and it's not working out, and this person is not going to fit in with the crew. And it almost would have added a bit of humor in between these more serious scenes. Hmm. And then by the time Picard comes back to the ship, he's like, where's the new chief medical officer? Uh, that person left. They didn't like us. And <laughs> we didn't like that person. And he's like, okay, well let's bring the next one in and then end it the way it did. Hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> well, speaking of the ending, then um, we get this kind of, you know, back and forth. Crusher is rescued from Sela's grasp by this, uh, Romulan centurion who we find out is Manathus, who is the super secret Romulan spy. Um, but he's not really her benefactor. He decides of course that he's going to kill her and his whole mission is to diminish Sela in the eyes of the Praetor because he's op operating under orders of the weapons dealer guy. Like I said, it's very complicated, all these relationships. <laughs> but of course, Crusher's able to escape him and She's um, secreted in kind of the basement of one of the rebel households and Picard and them are working on the cure and eventually manage to make the cure and distribute it. And then there's kind of the final showdown between Sela and the rebels and, you know, big climax. And of course, everyone is all OK at the end because it's a Star Trek novel and that's kind of where we've got to leave things. But everyone gets back to Federation space and right at this climax that I talked about, Jean-Luc, you know, takes Beverly in his arms and realizes, of course, his deep feelings for her. He's come to realize them over the course of this novel. And Jean-Luc whispers in her ear that he loves her and always has. And it's not the great, you know, 
um, romantic comedy ending he's expecting because she's kind of like, ah, and does not react well to that, at least, you know, from Picard's perspective. And he worries, of course, that he's ruined their friendship and that sort of thing. However, in the final closing pages of the book, so much so that I was looking like, how much of this book is left? Because I know Beverly ends up back on the Enterprise and they're together. Right. So like, what the heck? And it's like in the last like three or four pages. Yeah. Picard's welcoming the new medical officer on board. He doesn't know who it is because he's been in this kind of weird funk the last few days and not concentrating on his duties. It's Dr. Crusher. And she kisses Jean-Luc with extreme passion. And that's the end of the novel. What did you think of this ending? Because I was honestly like getting whiplash from from being thrown back and forth on this. As I said earlier, I was expecting this book to be about the relationship. And it's kind of like the B storyline of the book. Um, mm-hmm. Throughout the novel, there's times where Beverly is, you know, thinking about Jean-Luc or realizing that she's, you know, wondering where he is and, and how much maybe he means to her more so than she thought she's thinking of the breakfasts that they have and how it wasn't maybe it was more than just breakfast that she enjoyed it was him and and he's having thoughts of her so throughout you know as they're apart there's thoughts of each other but we're not we don't really bring them together until towards the end as you said he whispers something to her and she backs off and walks away and it's like oh maybe they don't get together and you're right i'm looking like there's only like two chapters left like I thought this was the book. I like. I thought this book was going to be the Amzadi of Picard and Crusher. Exactly. That was my thinking going into this as well. That's exactly how I phrased the book in my head. Yeah, and it's not. <laughs> so then, that ending scene that you mentioned, I wasn't a big fan of it because first of all, he knows the chief medical officer is coming to his ready room. And, you know, he's wishing that Beverly would have come back, but she's not. Now he's got to break in this new chief medical officer and he stands up and he's looking out his window. His back is towards the door. He hears the officer come in. Doesn't the person doesn't say a word. He just hears the person come in and he starts speaking to them with his back still turned. Well, you know, I know you're the new chief medical officer and obviously because you are, you're probably very qualified to be a doctor on the ship, blah, 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 blah. I mean, he talks like two or three sentences with his back towards this person, which I thought was really odd that he would just stand (laughs) there and not turn around until he talks two or three sentences in and then turns around. I know what he, you know, the author's doing here because then it's, it's Beverly, you know, and he doesn't Mm -hmm. turn around until she says something which I think is the line she used from Encounter at Farpoint. Encounter at Farpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, I I do agree with you, but I will say this is very much in Jean-Luc's character because speaking of Encounter at Farpoint, I recently rewatched it with a friend who's never watched The Next Generation. And when Will Riker comes on board for the first time, Picard's in, in the battle bridge captain's chair looking down, facing forward, you know, looking at the view screen and entering things in the computer. And Riker walks in and Picard does not look at Riker the entire time. Oh, wow. He says, welcome aboard, Commander. Or no, he doesn't say welcome aboard. That's that's the whole thing. He's like, Commander Riker, you know, is the monitor ready, Lieutenant Yah? 
I want you to watch uh, something that happened on the way to Farpoint. I think you'll find it interesting. And Riker just keeps standing there and says, I, sir. And Picard's like continues on the computer. And then finally just kind of glances over his shoulder. Welcome aboard. Wow. Like, so I was like, oh, it's so in Picard's character. Like, it's like he's kind of snapped back to the Martinet that he was at the at the start of encounter at Farpoint. And I don't know if that was intentional or if it was just a byproduct of them wanting to preserve the surprise of it being Crusher. But I, I was like, I that's so funny that it mirrors the scene so much. And the know. fact I, that he used Crusher's line from encounter at Farpoint makes me think that he just watched it or something. Yeah. That makes so. me think it was intentional then. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I did think it was keeping into in his character it just seemed a little too long that's why i keep saying like mm-hmm. I, maybe it's not two or three sentences i don't know i can see him saying something like that and then maybe turning around once they speak but i just felt like he was talking a little too long with his back but but because you mentioned that scene and considering how he regrets the fact that it's not beverly that even though it really is, but you know, it would make <laughs> sense that he would do that in, in a lot of ways. So that, that helps me with that scene a little more, but the part then that really doesn't seem to work and it didn't bother me at the time. It wasn't until I explained it, told my wife about it when Beverly then like quickly approaches him and then just starts passionately kissing him. I told my wife how that scene ended and she just rolled her eyes. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> like i feel like it's tying it back to crusher's first kiss where the boy just up and kissed her but at the same time it's just so awkward like (laughs) it feels really cliched and yeah like you said eye rolling a little bit for sure yeah but you know it kind of works but it's it's fine you know yeah that's how it ends it's fine Mm -hmm. that's it that's the end of the novel so Yeah, I guess with that, with this being the very end of the novel, all that's left is our final thoughts and a final rating for Death in Winter. Bruce, what are your final thoughts? As I mentioned, I thought this was going to be more of a romance novel. I was really going into it, expecting it to be Picard and Crusher. Maybe they're on Ryza. I don't know. You know, whatever it is. (laughs) The title of it is Death in Winter, which makes sense because this planet that they're on, it's constantly in a winter snowstorm and there's death happening and things. So, I mean, that all makes sense. But it wasn't a romantic novel. And like I said, the whole thing with the Romulans really fascinated me. I love that part of the story. That was my favorite part of the book. And I like that they kept the two characters of Picard and Crusher separated. I enjoyed seeing her deal with the Romulans and being captured and dealing with the spy and, and that whole aspect. And then I enjoyed seeing Picard coming to the planet and dealing with the underground movement and sneaking around trying to help the play. So I like the two adventures going on with these two and how they're interacting with the Romulans and this race of being on this planet, the Cavatris. So um, honestly, I start really getting, as the book started getting further in, I was getting more invested in it. So I'm actually going to give this four and a half really deep kisses to Jean-Luc or to Beverly, whoever I'm in the mood for at the moment. 
<laughs> that sounds <All> really right. <laughs> weird. <laughs> well, um, yeah, this novel to me, I'd never read it before like you. And uh, I'd always heard a bit about it. And I knew this was the one that, like we said, it was the one that Picard and Crusher finally got together in. So yeah, like you, I think I was expecting a little bit more of like the Imzadi of Picard and Crusher, but it was really not that. And I, like you, I found myself really much more invested in the Romulan politics of the situation. I thought that was really interesting setting up what happens later on in the relaunch series. Um, I wasn't wowed by this novel. I, it, it was a bit of work to get through it. I wasn't not, not that I was ever tempted to put it down, but it was just like, oh yeah, okay, I have to read that book. And I was never really drawn to see what happens in the next chapter or, you know, there was nothing particularly page turning about this for me. And a few things in it that just literally made me confused and like, why is that in there? I didn't understand that we could have done without that and spent more time on this, that, or the other thing. It's not a bad novel. Uh, it's just not one that particularly wowed me. Uh, so my rating, it's similar to yours, but a little bit different. I'm going to have to give it three awkward first kisses and like ones in which there's kind of almost like a little burp or something in it that makes it really awkward <laughs> and everybody just ends up laughing. It leads to more kisses, so it's not the worst, but they're just not great kisses. I don't think we ever had kisses and burps linked <laughs> in a rating before like that. Uh, and just to add to that, what you're saying, I think I feel like my score is probably a little too high, but I think I did that because I was really going in with low expectations that I really wasn't mm. going to care much for this book. And I was really surprised how much I was enjoying it. Like you, I wasn't that invested in it, but by the time I got like halfway through it, I, I just started to get really invested in it. And I was always under the impression that I wouldn't like this novel because, and I, I should never listen to anybody because someone told me, oh, Death and Winter, it's okay, you never read it. It's not good. So I never mm. just, I've always kind of like, well, maybe I'll never read that. Maybe one day, but I hear it's bad. I don't know how many times people have told me a book is bad and then I read and I'm like, are you kidding? This is great. And then I find out other people go, oh yeah, that's great. That's great. I'm like, why did I listen to that guy? <laughs> <laughs> that happens a lot for sure. But yeah. I, I'd say my score is just a little high just because it surprised me. Yeah. Mine might be a little low too. Cause I was sick <laughs> and I wasn't having the best time while reading it, but yeah, it just, for me, it, 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 like I said, it's not a bad novel. It just didn't grab me. Like usually even novels that I don't really like all that much or are kind of like, eh, there's usually something in it that just really grabs me and makes me like, oh, I really liked that part. And there's no real part in this novel that I was like, oh, I really liked that. I did enjoy the Romulan politics, like I said, but it just, it wasn't enough to make me go like, oh, wow, that was really great. That was really cool, you know? Yeah. And it kind of su surprises me that I think about it, that this is the first post-Nemesis novel for TNG, and there really wasn't any reflection back to Data. I was expecting that too. Yeah. I was totally expecting some kind of uh, reminiscing about data or something like that. And, and I was really surprised there wasn't. Oh, hmm. wow. Hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. Hmm. Well, now I kind of wish we did this book for Valentine's Day because hmm. there's so many kisses in our review at the end. 
<laughs> there really are good ones and bad ones. <laughs> and I somehow mentioned about kissing Picard and I've never wanted to do that before. And I still don't. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, Although you know, if, different if Patrick Stewart were to be here right now, I'd, I'd give him a kiss on his bald head. Aw, that's really sweet. And say, <laughs> I'm looking forward to your new show. Aw, that's really sweet. Well, it's been fun talking about kissing Sir Patrick Stewart on the top of his bald head today, but it's not the only thing that we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Warp 5. Well, and I feel like a side quest could be finding more spheres and gathering intelligence from each one. And each one has like a different way you have to get into them and a different thing you have to collect. Right, or yeah, or they're, they're cloaked differently yeah. or... Each one you know, has each yeah, one is in, individual. Earl Grey. Because like the DNA transformation, what where's the DNA coming from that's being transformed? You know, I, it's I like I a mean, replicator. Yeah, and I think that again, <laughs> no. the, the the yeah, but I mean again, the explanation that it's an advanced Genesis device kind of makes me buy mm, it more. Okay, yeah, but. It just felt a little weird, the DNA thing. It just looked, it looks like, some, hey, we need, can somebody just throw some leaves on the bridge, you know? But, you know, I think it's a really cool concept. The the snakes in the... In the uh, torpedo? Was it the torpedo? I, I, for some, it, at that moment, I thought, this is the Halloween 3 of Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> to the journey! That's that's a really good point, Suzanne. We need to clarify because we're, when we're talking about Chakotay and Seven, some of the best romantic scenes are not actually with Chakotay; they're with hologram Chakotay. Yes, I would like to meet hologram Chakotay. He seems nice. You want to date with holographic Chakotay? Okay. <laughs> if I had a holodeck, you know, I'd be programming that in right now. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Saru finally realizes at some point he's seeing its language in ultraviolet light. Basically, Morse code. I don't know why they don't say that wording. Oh, you thought Morse code? Because I was thinking binary. That makes sense, too. But isn't binary kind of a version of Morse code? Because Morse code is a type of binary language. Because all it is is beeps and not beeps. You know what I mean? Like. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. Beverly, if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. And Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published, my love. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And Beverly, if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music. Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, and most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link and make it so. Wow, it's, it's like I'm in the room with him. It's crazy. Well, if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. 
Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Oh, Jean-Luc, I'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is not in sickbay, but in the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. If you'd like to send me an email, Jean-Luc, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact choose to send to a show and select literary treks and that will come right to me you can also find the network on twitter at trek fm and on facebook at facebook.com slash trek fm so turn around and look at me and let me kiss you so i don't know if you need to be alone with yourself right now or what but uh To everyone else out there, you can find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, (laughs) as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus, there are great conversations happening about the books and comics that make up the Star Trek literary universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads.com and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chamutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not taking a private shuttle to the Enterprise E's shuttle bay to stop Worf and Geordi from going off on some cockamamie mission to rescue Picard and Crusher, where can we find you? Why, thank you, Chicote. I will be on the Voyager. Um, you can find me on Twitter <laughs> at Admiral. Look, I do not think I do good impressions of any of those characters I just did. Believe me. I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. You can find me here on the network doing live from the edge with Brandy Jacola. And that is our live show on Friday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific after every new episode of Discovery, which is on Thursday nights now. And also you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast. And of course, you can always find me in the Babel Conference. So Dan, when you're not trying to disguise yourself with some kind of holographic projector that people don't realize you're human, but you're something else, where can people find you? Oh man, don't you want one of those? That was the coolest thing in this book. Yeah, and I thought Giorgio has that in section 31. That's true. Yep, absolutely. Section 31 gets all the best toys. Like a century early. (laughs) I know, right? Well, uh, when I'm not lusting after a holographic skin like that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions, where I do Star Trek videos, uh, mostly about Discovery lately including Dan's Disco Deep Dives, which is a nice alliterative title that I really enjoy. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook.com slash Productions, and you can find me in the Babel Conference, mostly lurking, but sometimes posting and commenting. Thanks everyone for listening, and until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that, light reading? To each his own, number one.